bring story, bring enthusiasm, bring passion for the, the ask, the collaboration, the partnership. Avoid anything that smacks of sort of a pitch or a salesy type approach. If you're able to craft that kind of relationship and have them uh, emotionally fall in love with your event, at least the idea of it, then the finances will sort, sort themselves out. Hello, TEDx organizers, and welcome to Solving for X. This is our global campfire where we discuss the ins and outs of organizing a TEDx event. I'm your host, Jay Hirati, and today's guest is Dimitri Gunn. He's the licensee of TEDx Cambridge in Boston, Massachusetts. Today we're talking about partnerships, and in particular, how to get the right partners for your event and how to keep them. This is one of the most challenging tasks for any TEDx organizer, but luckily there are many ways to go about obtaining partnerships. Dimitri, as you'll hear, has a lot of unique and effective strategies, and hopefully you'll be able to modify those strategies and use them at your event. So let's jump right in. Welcome, Dimitri. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Oh, great to be here, Jay. Thank you for the invitation. So we're talking to each other on video. Where am I seeing you? I am based in Boston, Massachusetts, here in New England. All right, and I'm, I'm based here in New York at TED's headquarters. Today, we'll be talking about sponsorships because we've observed your event from the distance, and we see that you not only have uh, great partners, but also you've developed great partnerships. So we want to get a brain dump from you today about what you did and how you did it. Uh, and, you know, this is... a a topic that's quite intimidating to TEDx organizers. <clears throat> most TEDx organizers, if I ask them what's the number one most daunting thing for them to do, they would tell us that it's raising money, <clears throat> right? They love to organize, they love to produce events, they love to curate talks, coach speakers, but raising money is hard. Uh, we're going to try and demystify that a little bit today. To get us started, why don't you give us a sense for the kinds of partnerships that you have at TEDx Cambridge and what you're most proud of? Sure. So the backstory on the partnership model was that much like several other organizers, you know, we had this hole in the budget uh, a long time ago and uh, quite sort of by accident, we are like, well, uh, let's just split that number in half and try to find some partners that can actually help us underwrite uh, and close the gap. Uh, we found two. Fast forward to today, 10 years in. Uh, we have 12 corporate partners, uh, of which that includes uh, Amazon, uh, Google, and Microsoft. And as far as I know, I think we're the only TEDx event in the world that has those three partners all cohabitating nicely uh, within the confines of supporting not only TED's mission of ideas we're spreading, uh, but celebrating our local community as a global center of excellence. Interesting. So let me just make sure that I understand. So you started planning your event, you created a budget and you knew how much money you needed. You looked at your ticketing revenue and then you looked at the gap and then you were that that gap defined your partnership strategy basically Correct. or your, how much money you needed to go and get. And you've been doing that every year since. I'm going to ask you about the process of getting it, but I want to know a little bit more about your partners first. So you've got three very big sponsors. You said you've added 12 partners. Give us the names in your partnership lineup. Sure. So uh, running through it, I don't want to forget anyone. We have uh, Amazon, Amgen, Boston Consulting Group, Brown Advisory, Delta, Google, IBM, Intersystems, Merck, uh, U.S. Merck, not uh, German, uh, Microsoft, Philips, and uh, Shell. Wow. These are all big global brands. Are you talking to their local offices or are these... 
which which branches are you talking to with these partners? Sure. So if they are headquartered in Massachusetts, it's with the CXO. So either the CEO, the CMO, uh, CIO, Chief Innovation Officer, as far as the key decision maker and the patron within that organization. If they're headquartered outside of Massachusetts, then it is the site or the managing director that ultimately owns the relationship. We tend to use the term like gardening uh, around partnerships. It, it's a year-round process. Uh, even when it's cold outside and there's no event happening, you need to be thinking about the soil and the engagement and the community. We also do salons. So we have a nice cadence throughout the course of the year. All right. So now you have a hole in your budget. Let's kind of walk through the four steps of, of selling, starting with prospecting. How do you, what's your process for prospecting, for creating a, a short list of companies that, that you contact? Most of the growth actually has come about through warm referrals and introductions because we ask our corporate partners, because it is a flat membership-based model, we ask them what cultural and functional diversity are we missing within the corporate partnership. Uh, and oftentimes our existing partners are an excellent bellwether and test for what we're missing. Uh, and obviously by nature of them either being uh, a senior executive in the C-suite or a site director, they all know who their counterparts are within the ecosystem because they, they serve on similar boards, similar trade groups, similar regional bodies, uh, and also, you know, are, are ruthlessly competing with each other. <laughs> so, so Reefer, let me, let me stop you right there. So you just used the term that we're not familiar with. You said that your partners are referring you to new partners. And then you said, because we have a flat membership model, uh, what does that mean? Sure. So... Um, Harkening back to where we got our start, we had that hole and we just sort of split that number in two. And uh, we luckily found two uh, to in order to close that hole and host uh, an event early on. Uh, and by extension, we realized uh, sort of naively at the time, but it actually worked really well. It's like, OK, well, that number works. We found two people. Uh, we might be able to find maybe a third or a fourth. Um, and we essentially, therein lies, you know, the flat membership model. There's no hierarchy. So what we've, I think, observed is, is a lot of TEDx organizers, you know, hypothetically say they have a $20,000 hole in their budget. They'll create the, sort of the platinum gold silver package, a 10K for the platinum, a 5K for the gold, and they'll try and find two silvers. And by the way, it's, that's not only TEDxers, that's like 90% of the world, including those of us here at TED. So I, <laughs> I myself am really curious to hear about your model and experience because it's even different than what we're doing. So, sure. so you looked at that and you went another way. Yeah, so we, um, I think now we're, we have a much better sense of sort of what, why it's actually working so well for us. It's, it's, but what happens is that when you're out sort of socializing that package, uh, it requires quite a bit of cognitive capacity for someone in a sales or marketing role to evaluate, like, which package, how much budget do I have, like, what's in it for us, do we want to be silver, gold, platinum, or conversely, you may think someone's a silver and actually you should be approaching them like a platinum, but you don't know that until actually you open up the dialogue, you're in the room, you're asking them questions. Uh, and so we realized having uh, fortunately closed that, that hole on our budget with two partners who both shouldered the same sort of you know, financial burden or risk. They both had great experiences. They came back uh, the next time, supported us in the following year, uh, that that was a number that worked well and resonated within our community. Uh, and so instead of building out hierarchy off of something that actually worked initially, we just kept extending it for that same dollar figure. Uh, and that was essentially the hallmark of our flat membership model uh, that ultimately, you know, looks a lot like the WEF. 
so a component of, of TEDx Cambridge is, is sorry, it not looks only, like, sorry, it looks a lot like what? The World Economic Forum, oh, uh, okay. as far as their membership model, um, which comes into... Now, that, uh, was your, that was your first acronym violation to me. <laughs> I'm going to catch World you. World Economic My Forum, goal is sorry. to get to five today. <laughs> Buzzword bingo. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So, sorry, I cut you off. So you, no, no, that's fine. Say, so, yeah. we, uh, by pure, uh, you know, happen chance, we stumbled upon sort of this flat membership model that worked really well for us. Um, and the, one of the interesting decisions was that once we sort of figured out the model and started to grow, uh, there was some tension within the partnership about wanting to sort of uh, we had some we had a particular partner at the time that was really keen to kind of like own more of it. Uh, and we actually made the conscious decision not to allow that to happen, huh. to continue henceforth with the membership model and and actually turn down a much larger potential check with the hope and the faith that the membership model will continue to pay dividends down the road. Uh, and actually, that's what happened. Interesting. I can see from this model that you're partners feel like they are peers and then they are they feel like they're almost like a committee that supports you right so they want to invite others in they're not competing with each other there's no hierarchy one is not you know better than the other but let me ask you this the downside of of that let's say each partner gives you fifty thousand dollars i don't know what they give you but let's use round numbers um and one wants to give you a hundred thousand dollars it's really hard to say no to another fifty thousand dollars the other one is if you try to sign somebody up and they say you know what i don't got fifty thousand but i have 25 what do you have for 25. i know even on my team like when we do ted fest like it's hard for us we're like all right let's come up with something so they can do something smaller uh, i guess you walk away from both talk to me about that Sure. So it's a binary decision. The partnership essentially is a single figure. It's all built around a reserve seating model. Uh, so instead of going to a philanthropic dinner or a charity fundraiser and you're buying a table, they're buying a block of reserve seats. Um, and so those all start at the same price point, but you can actually sort of flex up and down uh, to acquire and secure more seats. So there are partners. So it's not just one price point. It's an entry level to get in. Uh, and then they can, depending, because at the scale that we're operating at, 2,500 people, if a partner brings an extra 10 or 20 guests, it kind of gets lost in the mass of, of individuals that are participating in the event. Um, so I should preface that by saying this model works well in venues where you have reserved seating capabilities, rows, numbers, letters. Um, it's a little more challenging when it comes to GA, although we do wow. general admission for our salons. Because uh, they're small, intimate events. But that was that was my second acronym, wasn't it? We're already two in. You got yourself general admission, okay? <laughs> so there are, uh, although we do cap it. I thought I understood and appreciated what underwriting was, particularly from the technology space. Uh, but when life science and pharma first joined, my God, they can roll deep, uh, and we made another very critical decision to cap the nature of the participation, the number of guests that a partner could send. So that was another kind of key decision that we made early on to make sure that um, they didn't warp the fabric of the event by sending so many guests and executives uh, so that we still maintained uh, the diversity from an organizational perspective as far as who was, who was participating. Um, they were incredulous uh, when we turned down the initial, what they proposed. 
But then every time when we, we get together and we talk about the next year, the membership, we all sort of laugh. And now they fully embrace the spirit, uh, the democratic aspirational environment uh, inherent that's the foundational component of the partnership model. So let's break down the offering to your partners. Uh, you have a, a base flat structure, flat membership model. If I may ask, if I, uh, I think our listeners want to know, uh, what is the dollar amount in U.S. dollars obviously, for uh, you, the base membership? Sure. So it's uh, 10K per year per partner. Uh, 10,000, yeah. Yes, 10,000 U.S. Uh, and that entitles them to 10 reserved seats to our main event at the Opera House, uh, as well as 10 seats allocated across the three salons. Uh, and then we ask them to, as best they can, evenly distribute those seats across the salon. Um, so for context, the Opera House event is 2,500 guests. Uh, the salons are 250. Um, and then we also host a VIP reception for our corporate partners at the Ritz-Carlton after the uh, Opera House event. And we host a private cocktail reception and, and gourmet dinner after each of the three salons. And so for this $10,000, they, they get the after event reception, the tickets, what's else in this package? Do you give them, you know, mentions in the on the website, just talk, give, give us a sense of what else is in there. Sure. So there's acknowledgement on the, uh, the website as a corporate partner and a financial underwriter. We also thank and acknowledge them at the top of the show, both at the, uh, the Opera House event, as well as the three salons. Uh, we host the, the private receptions and dinners, uh, respectively, after the main event, as well as the, the three salons. Um, and then we also, a, a really large component of the partnership model is facilitated double opt-in introductions Uh, to their fellow partners, uh, all built around challenges and goals that they, their team or their organization are facing over the next 18 months. Um, because the nature of the diversity of the partnership we have, and there's an enormous amount of sort of expertise. Uh, and so uh, the reason that we have those types of partners, including Amazon, you know, Google and Microsoft, uh, is that at any one time, we're probably working on six to eight different sort of introductions or collaborative projects that would have never happened unless we had the FaceTime with the CXO uh, or the site director. So are you saying, if, if I understood correctly, that simply having these 12 prominent partners, you leverage the power of convening them, bringing them together to talk about business challenges that they face to each other becomes part of the value of the package that you sell them? Correct. And so the, are you telling me that Amazon, Google and Microsoft learn from each other under the umbrella of TEDx Cambridge in a way that they probably don't collaborate in other in other situations? Uh, I would say that there are some tectonic uh, tensions that exist amongst those three uh, esteemed uh, partners of ours. Uh, and we found a very uh, interesting way to sort of short circuit some of those. How do you filter through potential partners? So I. I presume you get some recommendations from your partners. At some point, your team must have had to drum up lists of names. Uh, how do you decide who's a good fit with TEDx Cambridge with ideas worth spreading and who isn't? I think of it like Thanksgiving. I consider our corporate partners like family. Uh, and I'm from the South and it's we're very sort of traditional and that, that word means a lot. And so when you have that kind of emotional investment and that face time with those partners and that senior leadership, you're very careful Uh, about opening uh, dialogues with anyone that potentially doesn't share the same sort of cultural values and aren't fully aligned. And there have been situations where we've opened dialogues with a potential partner, uh, and it was very clear they were asking the wrong sorts of questions. 
uh, and we very politely disengaged uh, for a host of reasons so that no one lost face. All right, so let's dig in a little bit into your process of pitching and closing a sale. Let's take a theoretical, the last two partners who came to the Thanksgiving table, <laughs> the last two members of the family who joined, uh, and we don't need to know who they are, but uh, take us back to the, you got the meeting, you scheduled it, you're walking in the room. What's your pitch? Well, actually, it's, it started before that, Jay. So the managing director of one of the partners and one of the senior executives of one of the others uh, we invited as VIP guests to the preceding uh, main event last year uh, so they could personally understand and appreciate like the quality of the event production, the quality of the ideas, who else was in the room, uh, particularly during the reception afterwards, so that they, they could sense and, and feel the amount of leadership in that room. Um, and then we used that uh, as an opportunity to then set the meeting. Uh, now, with executives like that, it can take, you know, a month, two months uh, to, to get that face time, but it's absolutely essential. Uh, but they had that first proof point. They were willing to take time out of their schedule uh, in order to sit down and explore this a little bit further. I think the hallmark of how we open up and engage uh, a potential partner is, you know, we ask questions. You know, what are, what are their priorities? What are the goals or the challenges that they're facing over the next 18 months? Uh, because they're used to like the ask or the pitch. And when it doesn't come, it's very disarming. And when there's a great quote by, you know, Benjamin, Benjamin Disraeli, uh, talk to a man about himself and he'll listen for hours. Um, and so they're sort of flattered. And by extension, you can then use the answers to those questions to tailor uh, a really compelling narrative and story. And I think the thing that we've observed. So do, you, so do you do that? So do you walk in without, obviously, you're not walking in with a presentation and ask. You have to walk in with questions. But are, do you then turn it around into a a narrative in that same meeting or are you coming back for that? No, no, it needs to happen in that in that meeting because FaceTime is essential and they're willing to give you the benefit of the doubt. So you need to actually, uh, you know, if you have 30 minutes, spend the first 10, 12, maybe 15 asking questions and sourcing and probing and then use that as an informed basis to tell a compelling narrative in, inherent in what the event can, can do for them to solve some of those challenges or goals uh, that also... Um, involves underwriting because the thing that we've observed, um, and this is a big takeaway from having done this for 10 years, is that uh, sponsorship decisions are emotional uh, that are later intellectually rationalized. And if you don't bring a compelling story and narrative and passion into that room and connect with them as a human being, you're probably gonna fail. That's interesting. Sponsorship decisions are emotional that are later rationalized. Good. Intellectually rationalized. <laughs> Intellectually rationalized. Okay. So bring story, bring enthusiasm, bring passion for the, the ask, the collaboration, the partnership. Uh, avoid anything that smacks of sort of a pitch or a salesy type approach. And you just wrap it with uh, like enthusiasm. They need to sense it within you, that joy. And that's why I tell organizers, Whoever's doing partnerships for you, they need to love this. Uh, find someone that loves business development, not sales, but business development, and ultimately treat the individual like a person. The golden rule applies here. And sometimes it might take two or three years, uh, but if you're able to craft that kind of relationship and have them uh, emotionally fall in love with your event, at least the idea of it, then the finances will sort, sort themselves out. So when you ask them the questions and they talk about themselves and their priorities, what is the one or two things that you listen to? You know, that, that answer that you go, ding, 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 they said it. <laughs> and I know they just said that need, they just expressed that need, whether they know it or not. And I, I, and I have a great comeback for that. What's, what are you usually listening to? 
And like a lot of cities around the world, there is now a rush into the core uh, from the suburbs, uh, the exurbs, and by extension, like buildings, sort of like Tetris bricks are falling out of the sky with logos on, on the outside of them. When this happens, uh, it's all about um, announcing and community engagement, uh, branding, positioning, why they moved in. Uh, they're probably paying two, three, four times per square foot in that new shiny building than what they were out in the exurbs or the suburbs or the suburban office park. Uh, there's quite a bit of funding associated with helping them tell that story. Uh, and if you already have a partnership uh, stocked with premier companies, then that's something that they want to participate in uh, because they feel that they want to compete for the same sort of talent. They want to burnish their, their brand and have a seat at the table. So new buildings, uh, hiring sprees, uh, doubling down in an ecosystem are all things that we're looking for when it comes to potential the right time to open up a dialogue or to convert an ongoing dialogue uh, into something a little bit more meaningful as it relates to, to, to joining the corporate partnership. So you asked them the question, they gave you the answer, you shape your narrative, how do you deliver it? Do you then open your laptop and show them the slides or do you then deliver the, the custom narrative that you developed on the spot verbatim? What's, what's the next, in a 30 minute meeting, what's the last 15 minutes look like? Sure, so it's, it's uh, telling that narrative, uh, no slides, no formal pitch. Uh, if anything, the hallmark of a really great meeting is that they don't even ask what the dollar figure is. It's, it's after the fact. Oh, by the way, I just need to socialize this uh, internally or we'd love to have you come back. How much is this? So I know that $10,000 for some people listening to this from different parts of the world might sound like a lot of money, and it is. But in Boston area, for the names that you've mentioned, the brands, the ma they're all major corporation, $10,000, people don't get a sticker shock from it. It's interesting. In some ways, you created a flat structure, a low barrier to entry, then you lined up 12 really spectacular companies, and now the value that you suddenly are selling is less about how prominently we're going to feature you at the event or how much exposure we're going to give to our general audience, but it's like how much you're going to hang out with each other. <laughs> it's like, it's, I mean, it's uh, the classic example. It's the age old adage, uh, you know, as it relates to hosting a good party, who's in the room? Um, you know, that's a component of the partnership. It's who else is in the room? You've mentioned earlier uh, this notion of uh, gardening, taking care of your partnership throughout the year, even even throughout the, the cold Boston winter. Obviously, a year passes between the major event. You've got three salons in between. Uh, but what, what are you doing in between events? Sure. So we'll, um, we'll sort of kick things off usually in... Uh, you know, first quarter of the of the calendar year, uh, as far as uh, setting setting expectations, talking about what's coming, curation, the topics, uh, who we're who we're opening up dialogues with, who potentially may be joining the partnership down the road. Um, uh, essentially, sort of setting the table, literally and figuratively, for what's to come. It's also an opportunity to learn what the new sort of challenges, goals, and objectives are. Uh, it's also really important to understand like where the funding's coming from. Right, because that funding has strings associated with it, uh, particularly if there's specific business uses. Uh, it's always really important to know what the expectations of the funding are and where and whose budget it's coming from, so that you can proactively address that uh, at the start rather than at the end. Uh, we'll also schedule pre-schedule a debrief after the main event uh, to solicit feedback from the corporate partner and their VIP guests. We do that in advance of the event. 
Uh, we found that uh, if they know that they're going to be meeting with me, they're much more mindful of the event. They're more observant. They're a little more mindful of the discussions and the dialogues that are happening, particularly at the, the VIP reception. Uh, all of that becomes um, just a wealth of, of data. That we can so so let, me just, let me just make sure I understood that. You schedule a meeting with the partners and the VIP guests that takes place after the event, but you schedule it before the event so that they are really not only observing, but also cataloging the information and are ready to give you feedback. Correct. So sometimes they'll do an internal debrief with their guests in advance of the post-event debrief with me to make sure that we're actually reviewing and discussing uh, real-world feedback. So that helps focus their participation and their guests in a, in a meaningful post-event debrief. Uh, we'll also share the Net Promoter Score survey and some quotes um, cobbled together with you know, real-world feedback from, from their guests. Um, and then that's the point at which we then sort of turn the page and then focus on the salon season, which we host in the fall. Um, generate enthusiasm, once again, talk about who they're sending, what use cases. Um, and then we'll also pre-schedule coming out of the third and final salon, a debrief at the end of the season. And that's the point at which we explore renewing the membership. Obviously, the convening power of all the partners working with each other and learning from each other is a big selling point and uh, that that well, a selling point that you pitch to your potential partners uh, but what other primary benefits uh, do you sell them on sure so we've found over the course of the last 10 years that there are four um, primary ways that corporate partners think about who they're sending as far as their VIP guests in those reserved seating blocks. Um, first and foremost, probably about half of the VIP guests fall within what we call uh, talent and leadership development. So the invitation comes from the, you know, the CXO, usually the CEO's office or the site director, essentially uh, thanking and acknowledging high performers uh, talented individuals that they want to do everything they can to sort of acknowledge and, and keep within the company. Uh, so it's um, usually a component associated with internal programs to identify and retain those people. So they want, um, so the CEO or site director essentially says, you know, thank you for being, um, you know, a high performer uh, within the company. I'd like to invite you as my VIP guest to TEDx Cambridge uh, as a reward and acknowledgement of the great work you're doing. Uh, and oh, by the way, during the reception, take advantage of this opportunity to mix and mingle with your peers from across the innovation ecosystem at Amazon, at Google, at Microsoft uh, in a way that they ordinarily wouldn't have access to. Because once again, it's a democratic, aspirational, flat membership model that wherein the competitive tensions of the ecosystem uh, for that night are sort of checked at the door. Um, half our partners are probably leveraging their VIP seats uh, within that primary use case. Okay, so talent and leadership development. Okay, so that's number one. I like this. I'm excited about this framework. What's number two? So uh, next one is community engagement. Um, oftentimes, the executives, if they're relocating here from out of state or they're moving in from the suburbs, they use this as a way to, to sort of build out their Rolodex and their sort of their connections with their peers in the innovation ecosystem. Because if you live and work in the heart of like Kendall Square or MIT, you know all these people. Uh, but if you commute an hour in from the suburbs uh, or you relocate here from another state, you don't have those connections. So the analogy to that is that if I move to Boston, I could either have dinner by myself for 10 years or I could ask Dimitri to throw a party for me. And then within within two weeks, I'll know everybody who I need to know. Right. <laughs> That's kind of like 
in the if the in a perfect world, yes, it takes a little bit more time. But uh, we've seen uh, we've seen some remarkable uh, individuals and executives who've really taken advantage of this opportunity uh, in a non Machiavellian sort of way. Yeah, no, it's a, in a in a really like it's a really important function. Um, all right, so number three is uh, client appreciation. Uh, so this is the classic example of instead of taking them to a soccer or football or baseball or basketball or hockey game. Uh, with the company's sort of box seats that, you know, is sort of cliched and boring uh, and the food sucks and the beer is crappy. Bring them to, you know, a premier independently organized TED event at the Boston Opera House uh, and then a VIP reception at the Ritz-Carlton afterwards uh, as, a, as a, an acknowledgement and a thank you for that, uh, for that being a key client, uh, usually in conjunction with the, uh, the executive or senior executive that owns the relationship. Um, and therefore, it's, you know... <clears throat> It's a, it's a TED event, TEDx, but in their mind, they're going to like this independently organized TED event in a beautiful performing arts venue here in New England. And I'm sure you do a really good job making, clarifying the distinction. Between well, I'm, I'm also, we've been, we've doing it long enough. Uh, so I know exactly how the executives are thinking about this. They're like, oh, I'm going to a TED event, even though it is a TEDx Cambridge okay. event hosted at the yes. Boston Opera House. Hey, we are, we're all living in that, in this kind of, uh, Mix, mixing world. That's okay. So <laughs> well, we're we're very clear about the distinction. So they're going to this uh, event, and I guess it's also a, it's not only an appreciation, but it's also a learning opportunity, right? They they get appreciated and they leave smarter. Right there, it's it's acknowledgement, at the very least, that they're a key client, uh, and that the company is appreciative of the business relationship. But beyond that, it's quality FaceTime. Um, and then the fourth and final one actually is is employee recruiting. So take a high value, a highly recruited. Uh, employee, potential employee out for quality FaceTime at the Opera House, Ritz-Carlton, Room Weaver Piers. But it's also a great way to kind of telegraph that the company thinks really differently about culture and engagement. Uh, and it's a subtle way for them to communicate and telegraph um, that they think differently, that they're, they're approaching this differently beyond just the package and the benefits and the challenges uh, that that company is tackling. Dimitri, this is a really interesting framework uh, in the four benefits that, that you sell on talent and leadership development, community engagement, client appreciation, and employee recruiting, what is notably absent is brand building. Um, I hear many cases TEDxers uh, sell or, or highlight the opportunity to get exposure in front of potential customers, which you didn't touch on, is this by, by choice? Did you try it? You, you, you decide not to do it? Uh, I'm just curious. Um, I honestly don't think that metric holds water, Jay. Um, I think, it's a, I think it's, a, it's a hopeful metric that they throw out uh, as part of being in an environment that's painfully awkward. There's no journey. There's no discovery. There's no real business use case. And so they talk about brand exposure. Um, if anything, we've been able to build this partnership because it's built around real world challenges that have significant budgets associated with carving out, solving or resolving. Um, and therefore, the entire VIP use case curation model is built around real challenges and real value that we're creating for them. So uh, we don't talk about your logo or brand building or exposing you to the audience. It's more about how that they individually, what are they doing? How are they participating collectively? The value that's being created with all the, all the emotionally invested nodes from across the partners, uh, such that the participation in the event itself is, like I said, the icing on the cake as far as a great event production, fantastic curation, good ideas, 
uh, and then a reception in a room uh, outside the confines of maybe some trade associations. They'll never see that amount of executive firepower ever again. Hmm. Um, but to also respect it, uh, because everybody knows that we're doing feedback meetings. And if I get wind uh, of any abuses, the other benefit of having a flat membership model, Jay, is that we're not beholden to anyone. We're very clear about our cultural value. We walk our truth and therefore we don't need that money because it's not a lot. Uh, and so the value we create for our partners is so disproportionate, the financial investment, why would they ever jeopardize that? That's incredible. You know, Dimitri, you have incredible passion and energy uh, that is almost contagious. And I think as, as folks listen to this, they can really try to extract the learnings and the strategies and the tactics. Um, and, and see how they can apply them locally. Thank you so much, Dimitri, for joining us today at Solving for X. You're welcome, sir. All right, take care. I hope you feel better. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I have a little cold in case there's nobody noticed. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dimitri. If you've got additional insights you'd like to share, questions you want to ask, or if you'd like to find additional resources about how to obtain and keep partners, be sure to check out the TEDx Hub. Thank you for listening to Solving for X.